Our present cannot be detached from our past. As uh, historian Henry Glassy wrote, history is not the past, but a map of the past. Draw from the particular point of view to be useful to, to modern travelers. You've done incredible work in taking places like Mississippi and Duluth, Minnesota, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, building the foundation for how past legacies led to a tipping points and, and white supremacy. You know, as we discussed earlier, we're, we're in an era where a portion of our country does not want to revisit our past. We, we know that psychologically, most people will only entrench themselves further when they believe someone is trying to change their mind. So, so what, is the, the, what does it practically look like to introduce the history of, of white supremacy among those who are not receptive to it? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Ground. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 706-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Robert P. Jones. He is the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute. He's the author of The End of White Christian America, White Too Long, and a new book that'll be the focus of our conversation today. Robert, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, when we hop to your your new book, the yeah, history great. of of white supremacy, um, this book examines the legacy of America's racism, but predating the transatlantic slave trade in America itself. Um, the history of which we will dig into uh, momentarily. You wrote, 
Identity rather than policy drives division. History becomes the new front line in the culture wars as claims about who we are as a people evidently turn on competing narratives about when and how we arrive at this place. More than any other work, you are reaching further back than most do to, to draw the connections of America's identity. What influenced you to reach further back uh, than most in this conversation? Thanks. I, I think that's absolutely the right place to start. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. Um, so every year, uh, PRI and Brookings uh, does uh, conducts the American Value Survey, which is a, a big survey on at the intersection of religion, politics, and culture. And as we entered kind of the Trump era, um, we realized that the questions we were needing to ask were less and less about policy and more and more about identity and who we are as a country, who counts as an American, um, what kind of a country are we, um, who's in, who's out, who is the we in uh, we the people. Like Those kinds of questions were absolutely driving our politics uh, in a way that that the older you know kind of policy divides were kind of falling uh, by the wayside so that insight i think is you know part of, of what's driving um, really my last couple of books and and this one as well and uh, you're right in this book i i reach further back and really the thing i was after in this book is trying to figure out how far back does this go you know if we and where can we trace these divides. And, and the one way to, uh, I think, sharpen uh, the divide that I'm talking about is really we've had these two competing visions of the country that have been with us from uh, before the beginning. And I think that's the thing that's become more clear to me with uh, research in this book is that uh, the divides don't just go back to the beginning of the country. They are divides we inherit uh, from Europe uh, coming into this country. And, and it really it finds expression today in these two competing visions of the country. One is um, you know, are we a pluralistic democracy where everyone, regardless of race, regardless of religious conviction, regardless of, you know, country of origin, um, our ethnicity stands on equal footing before the law, um, just like everyone else uh, does? Or, or we, are we a uh, promised land for European Christians, uh, a, a fundamentally Christian uh, nation and, and and European Christian nation. And those two competing visions of the country are still with us today. They're still driving some of our biggest uh, divides, and they go all the way back. These are two things that have that have really been at the heart of America's deepest conflicts since before the beginning. I want to go back uh, to that opening sentence in the quote I read uh, a moment ago, identity rather than policy drives division. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah. Do you want me to, uh, I don't know, you have something, I, I, I thought that's what I was doing. Is there something else you want to, you want to get to? Yeah. I, I mean, take, take us just a, a little bit, you know, deeper in the sense of kind of, you know, what are the distinctive identities driving division right now? Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of what's going on is, and, and, you know, there's always the question of like, why now, why, why are these divisions, uh, so sharp now? And I think part of it is, uh, some of the patterns that I've uncovered um, in previous books. Um, so the fact that our demographics are changing uh, quite dramatically in this country, um, you know, just, uh, you know, when Barack Obama was running for president, uh, for example, um, the country was still comfortably majority white and Christian. If the country was 54% white and Christian. 
Um, today, um, that number is 42% white and Christian. And we cross that um, kind of milestone uh, of going from a majority white Christian country to one that was no longer a majority white Christian country during the tenure of our first African-American president. And I think it's the juxtaposition of those things that has set off this reactivity um, in the country. And, uh, you know, the fact that not only did we have uh, our, not only did we elect uh, our first African-American president, but he he won re-election uh, as well. And I think that that, along with the demographic change, was a clear signal that something new was happening in the country, um, that the country was, uh, you know, living into this vision of being a pluralistic uh, a democracy uh, and wasn't this older vision and competing vision of being a white Christian country. But I think that that, that older sense of among white Christians of this country belonging to us uh, uh, was is, is increasingly under threat as the country continues to change. And so I think that's why this is so front and center uh, uh, today, uh, be, because like no other generation, we, we really are living uh, at a time uh, where, in terms of both race and religion, uh, the country is is quickly changing. At the heart of this book is is an attempt to expose the the deep hidden roots of America's current identity crisis. Um, you wrote this moment of reckoning with our fraught and contested heritage is spawning new practices of remember, reckoning with mistakes made. Uh, commemorating victims forgotten and imagining paths not taken. It also is generating a visceral and sometimes violent resistance. Um, we're at this inflection point in which um, re-examining history, actual facts is contentious. Why do you think that is the case? Well, you know, I, I always remember uh, these little aha moments uh, in uh, in my kind of educational uh background. And, and one of them was when, you know, I had a history professor uh, tell us and, and kind of remind us that, you know, most history is written by the victors uh, and by the, the dominant forces um, in the country. And I, I think that's partially what we're dealing with now is that, you know, we've had a history that has been written uh, by the white Christian majority that has told the story of the country that reflects uh, themselves, ourselves, uh, say that as someone who's white and Christian, that reflects ourselves, uh, you know, certainly in the best light possible. Um, the heroes, who are the, who are the heroes, who are the villains, you know, all of those are, have been written, uh, from that perspective. And we are, uh, you know, again, you know, throughout the second half of the 20th century, in particular, the last 20, 30 years have been experiencing a lot of challenges, uh, to those mythologies, uh, uh, counter histories, alternative histories, uh, and and I, I think that you know those competing voices uh, are are you know very much with us uh, today. And and part of what I'm trying to do in the in the book as well is to continue to take us back uh, so that we can really see um, our own history um, in in a, in a different light uh, than I think the one that most of us uh, who are white and Christian, uh, whether we went to private private you know Christian academies or even public schools as I did. Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, um, we got a pretty one-sided and a pretty triumphalist, and I guess the other word I would use is a pretty innocent history. We can't go any further without telling you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. 
How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Let's go back. Uh, 1452, Pope Nicholas V uh, issues the Doom Dervas. Uh, Dervas, uh, it's a, po- a papal bull. Uh, that gave uh, the Portuguese King Alfonso V uh, the right to invade, search, capture, conquest, and subdue um, all the Saracens and pagans. Um, this is where the doctrine of discovery intersects with European imperialism. For, for you, why was this a, a critical starting place for what will become America's complicated identity with subjugation and annihilation? Well, when I begin to trace it back, uh, and again, what we're talking about is really this idea um, that the country is intended by God to be a, a kind of promised land for European Christians. And when I tried to find the, you know, think about the roots of that problem, it's certainly, you know, we've got other places in history where it goes, but I've traced it one place I think that the earliest roots of that is in these uh, 15th century papal bulls. Now, papal bull is essentially an official edict by the Pope. Um, you know, uh, that has the full authority of, of the Pope and the Church. And in the 15th century, um, just as a reminder, you know, this is before the Catholic-Protestant split. So um, the Pope in Rome is is the head of the entire Western uh, uh, European Church at the time. So the, the ultimate kind of moral and religious authority. And what's going on, right, is um, uh, this is uh, 1452, and it's the beginning of uh, the quote-unquote discovery uh, by Western Europeans of these other lands, uh, this entire continent, in fact, that they didn't know, ex- you know, they didn't appear on any maps um, uh, before that time. And it created um, this dilemma for a clear political dilemma, a moral and theological dilemma. And uh, so the, the political powers began to appeal to the Pope to help them make sense um, out of this and and to establish like what their rights were uh, vis-a-vis these people and these lands and these papal decrees there were a number of them in the late 1400s um that that the together became known as the, as the doctrine of discovery um that that just established look that if these lands were occupied by non-christian people um uh, whether they be muslim or jews or pagans, uh, as, as the texts say, uh, they are all to be considered uh, enemies of Christ, is the language that is used in the documents. Um, and, you know, the lines that just stay with me is that uh, they give the right, uh, the Pope gives the right to all these um, Christian countries in, in Europe um, that to capture, vanquish, subdue, and then the last line, um, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. So it's an absolute permission uh, for Christian uh, countries to go in and and absolutely uh, kill, uh, commit genocide, uh, steal land, uh, occupy, and dominate uh, these other 
uh, countries. And the idea was that these were enemies of Christ. And so it was simultaneously a political conquest uh, and a religious uh, conquest. So all these paintings that we see that are familiar from that time of, you know, the European explorers with these uh, planting these crosses and saying these prayers um, in, in, in paintings that we see, uh, those are very explicit ritual enactments laying claim uh, to their right to dominate uh, not only the land, but the people of those lands. The book is built around some critical stories in America's identity. I want to zero into the conquest, the Spanish conquest of the Mississippi Delta, colonization, mm. displacement, enslavement of the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Creek that laid the foundation for later formation of chattel slavery, post-war terrorism by the KKK, uh, the, the migration of Black Americans to places like Chicago, and the continuation of what many perceive to be the most racist region in, in the country. Um, states are human constructs created uh, to give boundaries and authority and land rights. Mississippi is considered to be, by many, the, the most racist state. Can you, and I know you wrote like several chapters on this, but can you thread mm -hmm. the connection between the rival of DeSoto to today in Mississippi? Yeah, well, I f should first say that I'm from Mississippi, um, right? So I grew up in Jackson, uh, uh, Mississippi, uh, and, uh, and also for this book spent a fair amount of time um, in the Delta, uh, kind of the, the northwestern quadrant of Mississippi. Um, and, and, you know, so I have a sentence in the book that, that you know, says that the story of the Emmett Till uh, begins 400 years earlier with the discovery of the Mississippi River by Hernando de Soto. Um, and the reason why I connect these things is is because if you really want to understand the um, Jim Crow, if you want to understand uh, segregation, if you want to understand the Confederacy, if you want to understand slavery, uh, all of those things had Christian justifications uh, in, around them, behind them, uh, and as their foundation. And if you really want to understand that amalgamation, you do have to understand, take it all the way back. And so, you know, I, I kind of begin with the scene of Hernando de Soto, um, you know, again, quote unquote, discovering uh, the Mississippi River. And he does this ritual where he plants a cross in the ground. He reads an edict claiming uh, the land for Spain and in the name of the church and in the name of, of the king of Spain. Um, and that ritual um, is this assertion of the superiority of Christianity and Western, uh, quote unquote, civilization that lays the cultural theological groundwork uh, for the treatment of Native Americans, first and foremost, um, and, and that ultimately slavery, Jim Crow. And you can't understand the kidnapping, lynching, torture of Emmett Till, this 14-year-old boy from Chicago that came down to visit his grandparents in Mississippi in 1955 without understanding uh, what happened 400 years ago to set the stage for white Christian people in Mississippi to see themselves as the pinnacle of human civilization and as the rightful uh, uh, dominators in a hierarchy, a hierarchical understanding of, of people uh, and land. Um, in the country. So I, I think it, it it shapes how we understand not only those events, but you know, to me, the, the, the sort of devastating through line here is that, you know, the same forces that claim those lands that forcibly removed uh, the creeks and the Choctaws off of that land 
really at you know at gunpoint forcing them on the trail of tears to Oklahoma where about a third of them died and root and many more died when they when they arrived in in Oklahoma um you know to slavery all of this again is is this current uh stemming from the doctrine of discovery and this idea uh that these lands were intended for the use uh and the exclusive use of of white christian people a few years back i had the humble opportunity to to visit the african american history museum in washington dc um the experience begins in a, a sub level deep under the earth in the hull of a slave ship and all the sections of the museum um I'd settled the most in the story of Emmett Till, and the section includes his uh, original casket and a large picture of his mutilated body. Um, and in the background, you hear the voice of his mother, uh, Mamie, explaining why she went against the suggestion of the funeral home and had Emmett's casket open at his funeral. Um, you know, the, the kidnapping, brutal murder, and, and mutilation of this 14-year-old is, is often credited as the spark of the civil rights movement. It also personifies Southern the Southern white response. Um, you know, why is it so important to cover the story in the book? Hmm. Well, one of the things I was looking for um, in the research for the book is where where are people on the ground um, telling these stories um, and and trying to recover um, a, a history that has been suppressed. So so in Mississippi Delta, Tallahatchie County, um, where the, the trial uh, of Emmett Till uh, happened, and where, by the way, uh, his murderers were tried and acquitted by an all-white male jury um, in the space of about an hour, um, despite uh, overwhelming evidence, and, and, and then later even confessed the crime. Um, you know, so that's the kind of justice that was meted out, um, even in the wake of such a horrific uh, crime uh, in Mississippi. And, and people trying to tell the story and give a more honest accounting Provide some measure of confession uh, to the to the the remaining Till family uh, was a really important thing, and and so there's a group that that came together, um, uh, an interracial group, black and white. And what's remarkable about this group in Tallahatchie County uh, uh, that formed what was called the Emmett Till uh, Memorial Commission was that they were descendants of enslaved people on the one hand, and descendants uh, and descendants of enslavers on the other. Uh, coming together in this small community and deciding they were going to create a different kind of future um, and and tell the truth uh, about what happened. And, and you know, before 2000, if you'd gone to Tallahatchie County uh, where uh, these events occurred, there was virtually nothing um, uh, on the ground. The markers, uh, you know, no uh, roadside things you could stop at and, and uh, even understand what happened there. And so they've been uh, working hard to document uh, there, they've refurbished the courthouse um, to make it look like it did in 1950. Take it back to that uh, view. They have placed historical markers um, where, uh, uh, for example, where his body was pulled out of the uh, of the river, uh, and, and still to some resistance. I mean, that's the signs that they placed there have had to be replaced a number of times because they've been shot uh, uh, by white residents, um, uh, and they've had to be replaced. Um, but but uh, just uh, the story comes to culmination. Actually, uh, it's, this is not in the book because it just happened two weeks ago. But uh, President Biden just announced the formation of a new national monument uh, that's going to be the Emmett Till and maybe Till Mobley uh, National Monument. 
that's going to have two sites, one in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, uh, and one in Chicago, where he was from and where his funeral uh, was held, uh, that, are, that will permanently then uh, commemorate um, uh, you know, and add a, and have federal support and and ongoing uh, funding to continue to tell the story. But it would not have happened without the efforts over two decades of a group of black and white citizens at the local community level saying it's time for us to tell the truth. And the reason we want to do this is because we don't really think our community can heal and move forward together without a confession uh, uh, and 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 some truth telling here. As you alluded to, you've done this uh, great work in Mississippi around the Emmett Till Memorial Commission and written extensively about the continued legacy of this murder within the state. You wrote efforts to memorialize Emmett Till and to tell the truth in the Delta remain a work in progress. Such efforts have indeed cleared important ground and helped drain some of the festering backwaters of white supremacy. You know, we hear stories of you know, like Emmett Till's, believing that we are so far removed from this history. Um, as we record this, I'm at a CBF event in St. Simons Island, Georgia, mm. uh, a few minutes up the road from Brunswick, where in, in 2022, Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, was run down by two white men and shot for jogging in their neighborhood. Um, you know, as we think about the, just... I guess the question boils down to um, what helps awaken us to the reality that we we're still in this, that this is still a part of uh, of our culture and our identity. Well, I, I think events like that that are so recent, I can also um, call up, you know, back in Mississippi and Rankin County, not far from where I grew up. Um, there were two men um, just this past month who were, uh, uh, a white neighbor called, uh, they were living in, in the house that they were living in, a white neighbor called and reported suspicious activity at the house, and the uh, Rankin County Police sent uh, four police officers there who um, entered the house without a warrant um, and subsequently uh, held these two men uh, for hours and, and tortured them, uh, did a mock execution in which one of them was shot um, uh, tased them multiple times, uh, you know, and just humiliated them, uh, again, for hours, I'm sure they both thought they were going to be killed, uh, and, you know, completely racially motivated, um, uh, uh, treatment of these two men. Luckily, they both survived, uh, but will certainly be permanently scarred, uh, by this, by this event, um, emotionally scarred by this event. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it, it's easy if you're if you look like me, um, you know, and you're white and have grown up uh, without having to think about these things. Um, but, you know, it's still the case that black mothers today, you know, ha have to have uh, the talk with their children um, about how to op how to behave around police lest they be killed um, uh, uh, by the police. And, and, and I think that reality, uh, it, it's harder to take in when, when you're white and you don't have to think about uh, these things, but you only have to read the headlines uh, to see how close these things remain at hand. And, and we're also experiencing, you know, should not be forgotten, a rise in anti-Semitism, a rise in open racism, um, uh, you know, in the country. Uh, and and it is, I think, a result of this kind of hinge point we're at in, in, in the nation and, and our kind of backlash and reaction against the changes um, in, in the country. So I, I think more than ever, um, it, it's it's important 
at this time of change um, and reckoning uh, for you know all of us of goodwill, and particularly uh, for those of us who are white and Christian and who've been really been complicit um, in uh, uh, the, creating the conditions that we that we find ourselves in today to play our part in uh, making the change so that our children and grandchildren inherit something something better uh, and something different. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Our present cannot be detached from our past. As uh, historian Henry Glassie wrote, history is not the past, but a map of the past. Draw from the particular point of view to be useful to, to modern travelers. You've done incredible work in taking places like Mississippi and Duluth, Minnesota, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, building the foundation for how past legacies led to a tipping points in, in white supremacy. You know, as we discussed earlier, we're, we're in an era where a portion of our country does not want to revisit our past. We we know that psychologically, most people will only entrench themselves further when they believe someone is trying to change their mind. So, so what is the the what does it practically look like? to introduce the history of, of white supremacy among those who are not receptive to it? Yeah, I mean, I think there will certainly be those who dig in and, and aren't receptive. But I, I think what's dawning on many white white Christians in particular is that, you know, we have something at stake. And I, I can tell you, you know, the first time, for example, um, so we're on a CBF podcast, and, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, and uh, it wasn't until I was in seminary that I I really got the truth about the beginnings of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that is that that uh, we were founded in 1845 explicitly to justify enslaving other people based on the color of their skin to make that compatible with the gospel. Uh, and you know, when I first got the truth about that, um, I was really angry. And, and I was angry, not just because of the fact of what I had learned, but I was angry that I had been lied to uh, and that I'd been lied to by people that I loved and respected. Um, that is my Sunday school teachers, my pastors, um, you know, that who many of whom actually knew this history and hadn't, uh, uh, you know, spoken the truth about it. And, 
You know, there's a sense, uh, I, I, one thing that's always stayed with me um, from uh, the writer James Baldwin, African-American writer James Baldwin, and I deeply respect, uh, he talked about uh, the way in which, and, and Martin Luther King did too, the way in which we, white Christian people have kind of created our own reality that's really detached from the the, the truth uh, of, of, of our history. Um, you know, King talked about uh, white Christians basically creating this bubble where uh, we are sitting, as, as King put it, safely behind the anesthetizing power of stained glass windows. Um, and then, you know, Baldwin uh, talked about, uh, you know, uh, whites in, in America uh, and saying that he and, and many other African-Americans thought of white people as uh, the slightly mad victims of our own brainwashing. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I certainly don't want to live in a delusion. Um, and I think that most people don't. Uh, and, and so the only way to kind of get out of that is to really, and to figure out who we are, how we got here, um, is, is to really start digging in. And so as part of what I think, I hope this book does, is start to have us tell the truth, but, you know, not just for the purpose of beating ourselves up or feeling ashamed, or, but I can tell you in my own life, um, while there's been some moments where I've certainly been brought to tears, uh, not only by the kind of general history, but even things I've learned about my own family, uh, as, as complicity uh, here as enslavers, uh, supporters of Jim Crow, um, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but it has also led me to a place of new energy um, uh, and a feeling of um, that I'm doing something with integrity, uh, that I am, and I'm doing something on my behalf, on the behalf of my children, right? That I think every generation has the responsibility to take what we've received uh, from our ancestors, but to sift through it, right? And to, and to think about like what, what here is, is, has integrity, um, is faithful to uh, the best of our traditions, um, and, and we pass that down. But we also have a responsibility to look at what has, where the mistakes have been made, uh, where the blinders have been on, um, and, and where, this, where sin has infected. Uh, our own faith and 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 to uh, excise that. And so I, I hope this winnowing process is um, is, is actually a part of Christian growth and discipleship and responsibility. Uh, and and I hope that that's um, at least one of the things uh, that's what's energized me to do this work. And I, I hope it's one of the things that the book kind of helps others do as well. I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago, which is that sense of feeling like you were lied to by pastors and Sunday school leaders. For for local church pastors listening to this, what's your advice for how they can um, go about the process of having these conversations through spiritual formation? Um, you know, a lot of pastors will depend so heavily on this 20-minute segment of their week called a sermon. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think all too many spend more than 20 hours preparing for that 20 minutes. Um you know, so really, what what does that look like spiritual formation wise and having these kinds of difficult conversations within a congregation? Yeah, well, you know, I certainly don't understand myself as a as a guru. And I, I want to speak with humility here because I've never, uh, you know, I did go to seminary and have an MDiv, but I've never served in a congregation. And I know how difficult um, and challenging those those positions um, can be. Um, and there is a, a real delicacy, you know, to how do you lead people um, from one place to another, particularly, as you said, when there is a, a kind of self-defense mechanism that kicks in, uh, that kind of protective 
uh, knee-jerk reaction when faced with some of these challenging uh, pieces of history. Um, what I've seen work, though, I can talk about that uh, in many congregations, are very concrete um, lay-led um, efforts uh, now with support of uh, the, the pastoral leadership. Uh, and that's where I think that uh, the pulpit, uh, Sunday school lessons, those can be places of kind of uh, reinforcement, uh, helping people along. But I, I think real change has to involve people in a little more, less of a passive role and more active role. What I've seen work um, are, uh, you know, church-wide uh, studies, uh, for example, that aren't just led, you know, by the clergy, but are led by some of the lay leadership of the church um, that are either self-studies. I mean, every church has, for example, you know, uh, of any age anyway, you know, typically has these church histories, you know, and they they tend to be these kind of rose-colored glasses of, uh, you know, that paint the founder, the kind of founding members of the church as, you know, these pillars of the community and, um, you know, tell a rosy history of the, of the church, but they tend to be very interior. Uh, so, you know, one project would be like, what does it look like if we we tell a, a more critical history of the church? So where was the church uh, during uh, practices such as redlining and, and, and uh, uh, neighborhood covenants that had racial restrictions on who could live in the neighborhood? Where was the church during Jim Crow? Uh, if it's old enough, where was the church during slavery? Um, you know, and and how do we understand our own relationship to that history? Another question that I've seen be very effective and very practical is, um, you know, you can get pretty deep uh, uh, fairly fast if you just ask the question, you know, why is our church building on the land that it is on, rather than being somewhere else in the city? How did how did we get to be in this place? And if you just take, you know, this plot of land and you begin to trace its history back, um, you know, you'll run into things like, was it part of a whites-only neighborhood? And in many neighborhoods, the church was one of the anchoring institutions of these racially restricted neighborhood covenants. Um, was it uh, part of white flight out of the city to the suburbs, uh, for example? And, and what did it sell an old building and move out to the suburbs? Um, to get away from um, uh, the diversification of the city, uh, you know, uh, the, the, and even further back, uh, you know, what's what's the even further back history? Was this, you know, which which Native Americans were were on this land, and what's the history of how it passed from uh, Native American possession to European ownership, and and how did that happen, and what happened to those people that were there? And I think if you kind of tell those sorts of stories, it begins to root. You know, it takes it from an abstract question to a, a deeply rooted and locally connected uh, conversation where people, everyone has, uh, I think, something something at stake. Um, and and again, I think it, it pulls it out of the abstract political ether and down to the ground of where people really live. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. 
Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Contemporary Americans um, would like to believe that the doctrine of discovery uh, was a worldview of the past, especially as the United States becomes more and more post-church. But but why does this doctrine extend beyond Christian theology and into white identity? And and how does the doctrine of discovery express itself today? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll I'll not I'll spare you the full history lesson here. I do go through it in the book, but it, it's it was remarkable to me to once I kind of had. Uh, this vision of the doctrine of discovery um, in my head that where you can see it crop up. I mean, it is, for example, in most of our founding documents in one way or another, um, you know, it, it, the Declaration of Independence, um, you know, which has all these amazing principles of self-government uh, and freedom in it. Uh, nonetheless, if you read the whole thing, um, re- refers uh, one of the complaints in there um, or, is that the British crown has limited the colonists' ability to further expand into Native American lands. And they call them, they call Native Americans merciless savages. That that word is in the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, the, the Constitution, another amazing, you know, document of, of, of kind of establishing democracy in this country explicitly incl- excludes uh, Indians uh, from being counted um, as, as citizens uh, there. And so you can go on and on. It, it's in our Supreme Court uh, case law, um, uh, and which propelled it into international law. So it, it's it's very much very concretely embedded in our in our documents and even embedded, you know, in our uh, our current uh, ideas. We we you know we asked a survey at PRI uh, about uh, really about the core ideas of the doctrine of discovery. And the question said, um, do you agree or disagree that God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world? Uh, today, 30% of Americans agree with that. So on the one hand, you know, Americans reject that statement by a margin of two to one, but there's huge partisan divides here. A majority of Republicans affirm that statement and a majority of white evangelical Protestants uh, affirm uh, that statement. So it, it's still in many ways there today. And we hear it just in kind of the ether, you know, when, when you hear somebody making an argument for the country being a Christian nation, um, it's it, we should all remember that that what's not said uh, in that statement is that it really is the, the word white uh, should really always be in, in uh, understood to be implied uh, when you hear the word Christian nation, because uh, that's the root of it. And that's really what people mean. Uh, uh, they've meant that historically uh, and contemporary, you know, this idea that the country is a promised land for people of European Christian descent. Uh, so it, it's still very much with us uh, today. And again, even in the things that are um, defining our two political parties. You've obviously, this is kind of, um, you've done more writing than this, but three books that have really kind of been out there with this being the, the third. Obviously the work around PRI um, that uh, has been uh, conveying some of these continued beliefs. I don't ask this question as if foot, you know, the foot needs to be taken off the gas, but what progress have you seen through your work at PRI, through your work and writing, through your work as a historian? Um, what progress are you seeing around these conversations um, around especially white identity um, and the reality of continued racism? 
Yeah, you know, I would say I, I, I am seeing progress. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book, uh, you know, in the second part of the, the title of the book is the, pa- is the Path to a Shared American Future. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that I was highlighting places of progress, even in places like Mississippi or Oklahoma. Um, uh, you know, so Oklahoma, for example, is, um, you know, a very red state. Uh, every county uh, in Oklahoma uh, voted for former President Trump. Uh, and yet in Oklahoma, um, there's also been a very successful, not uncontroversial, but but ultimately successful effort to tell the story of the Tulsa race massacre. Um, uh, there, at the, there was uh, that happened in 1921, and in 2021, at the 100th anniversary, there was a major commitment by Tulsa and even the state um, to tell an honest history about um, you know this awful event where um, uh, roving bands of white citizens. Uh, murdered um, upwards of 300 of their African-American neighbors across the space of a few days um, uh, in, in, in Oklahoma uh, that was subsequently justified by um, Oklahoma's white Christian churches. So, uh, but there's been progress there. There's now yeah, um, a, a, an entire museum uh, in the African-American uh, section of, of, of Tulsa called Greenwood, who's also commonly known as Black Wall Street, um, a Beautiful multi-million dollar museum, kind of telling the story now. It's kind of a permanent part of the city uh, of Tulsa, um, and, and I think uh, it's, it's notable that if you go back to before 2000, so it's just the last 20 years that many of these efforts have gotten underway. Uh, the the efforts to tell the truth about a lynching that happened in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, did not get underway till 2003. Uh, the efforts in Mississippi to tell the story on the ground in Tallahatchie County uh, about Emmett Till didn't get off the ground till two decades ago. Uh, the efforts in Tulsa also about the last 20 years culminating in these events in 2021. So I think it is you know, the case that if you look at these last 20 years, again, we have our first African-American president elected, there is movement. Uh, the country is changing, there is movement here. And I think one of the reasons why we are experiencing these strong winds of backlash, uh, attacks on you know so-called critical race theory, um, banning books, uh, banning AP African American history in the state of Florida, uh, like those kinds of things. Uh, these extreme kind of desperate reactions uh, really are because of the winds of change uh, that that they can feel uh, blowing. So I'm actually. Um, although I, I think we're at a particularly challenging point where, um, you know, it, 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 it possibly may get worse before it gets better um, because of this backlash. I, I do feel like the backlash is because of the changes um, that are that are afoot. Um, it, it's a reaction uh, to to more positive change. Um, and that's always been true in the country. Whenever there's been progress, there's always been a fairly immediate and and, um, and fairly dangerous backlash. And I think that's what we're experiencing today. Lastly, before we let you go, I know you've been out on sabbatical, uh, well-needed uh, rest and, and break. Um, what do you want to promote about the work of PRI? Yeah, well, I, I'm... Uh, uh, I guess two things I'd point to, you know, one is um, that actually informs some of this book. We we did a a, a pretty important study um, earlier this year on uh, on white Christian nationalism um, and and in the country, and we found very similar findings to the one I, I cited before. That you know, it, it's about a third of the country, um, a little bit less than a third of the country that is sympathetic 
uh, to uh, this whole this idea of white Christian nationalism that's kind of linked to the doctrine of discovery. Uh, but we really go through and, and show how that relates to other things. And, and it's important to remember that, you know, uh, the it is linked to a number of other attitudes, maybe not surprisingly, but you can see it in the data, for example, that this belief that the U.S. is a, intended to be by God to be a promised land for European Christians is linked to anti-Semitism. It's linked to anti-immigrant attitudes. Uh, it is linked to anti-Muslim um, attitudes. Um, it's linked to hierarchical gender, understandings of gender uh, and patriarchy. Uh, and so there's a kind of worldview, right, that this goes along with. And, and I think it's the sort of backlash against the passing of that whole worldview um, that, that's that's there. And that study, I think, makes that pretty clear. Uh, and then just one coming up in the uh, coming up ahead um, in, in the fall, uh, we'll be doing our 15th um, uh, annual American Values Survey with uh, the Brookings Institution, where we will be taking a look ahead uh, at what to expect from 2024 and how uh, uh, Americans are divided along lines of race and religion. Our guest is Robert P. Jones. The book is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. If you want to stay connected with Robert, you can follow his work at prri.org and white2long.substack.com. Robert, it's always an honor to sit down with you. Thank you for challenging us to give into, not to give into despair, but to be buoyed with hope that we might yet find a way to live into the promise of our nation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.